I think you're really going to like this episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. Our guest today is Dr. Todd Cavins, who's been a guest twice before covering seed propagation and vegetative propagation, and this time he's back to finish up our two-part episode on poinsettias. Dr. Will Healy kicked off the topic last episode focusing on nutrition, explaining that when it comes to poinsettias, if you have the nutrition right, most of your problems will be greatly reduced. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I suggest stopping this one and going back to Success with Poinsettias Part 1. There's a link in the show notes. If you have listened, great! Todd's going to pick up where Will left off and wrap up the topic by covering tools for height management, as well as pest monitoring and control strategies. If you're listening in real time, you know it's week 39 or 40 and it's a critical juncture for this important crop. As Todd tells us, it's transition and adjustment time, and he's going to share knowledge, tips and tricks to help you make the most of your poinsettia crop. How to use a graphical tracking tool available from Ball Seed, determining your optimal PGR regime, and even some post-harvest tricks to maximize sell-through at retail. We have a lot to cover this time, and Todd certainly lives up to the challenge. But first, Connect4, where we take a look at four strategies summing up one key topic. This time, let's talk about staying focused. I recently came across a list of eight ways to increase focus in a Fast Company article, and I made some notes because staying focused is a constant challenge, as it is for many of us, and something about which I'm always looking for tips and advice. I figured sharing four of the eight ideas would make for a good, short but sweet Connect Four. The first chip in our game of Focus Connect Four is to prepare your brain. Before a task, calm your brain by spending a minute or two sitting in a comfortable, tall position and breathing deeply into your stomach. I call this yoga breathing, and it really helps calm your body down before jumping into a task and also helps with concentration. Next, understand where your focus needs to be. This might seem obvious, but think about all of the distractions that arise when you try to focus on a task. I can't even begin to list them all. According to Ron Webb, an executive director at the American Productivity and Quality Center, success comes down to embedding focus into the flow of how you work. He suggests taking time to identify what deserves your focus for the year, for the month, for the week, and for the day. Then look at your calendar and block time dedicated to focus. I also find that using my Outlook calendar helps me put some definition to the blocks of time I really need to focus on a task. But don't be too rigid because without any flex time, you're sure to get off track. I love the third chip and I tend to play it every day at some point. Unplug for 30 minutes. All experts suggest that if you need to focus, log out of email and social media. Talk about distraction. The email that pops up, the constant notifications from social media, etc., etc. They take your attention away from what you're focusing on and studies have shown that the time it takes to get back into a focused state is far longer than you think. I found that turning off all notifications and deleting social apps from my phone has tremendously increased my ability to focus. And it's not like the social media has gone away, it's just far less intrusive. The final chip in Focus Connect 4 is to take short breaks. Instead of succumbing to distraction, build it in. Studies have shown that participants who were given short breaks during a 50-minute task performed better than those who worked straight through. 
Taking a short break in the middle of a long task re-energizes the brain and actually helps you stay focused. Hopefully none of these four tips seem very difficult and the rewards you gain from an increase in focus will make following them extremely worthwhile. Give it a try and prepare to be more focused. And speaking of focus, let's turn our attention to poinsettias and tactics for success with this important seasonal crop. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Todd Cavins to STEM. Todd is one of the technical services experts at Ball Seed and has been helping professional growers solve greenhouse production challenges for more than 10 years in the field and before that was a professor at Oklahoma State University. He earned his MS focused on cut flowers and flowering induction and his PhD in plant nutrition and soils, making him a perfect guy to talk about this episode's topic. With more than 15 years experience traveling North America and around the world working with growers of all shapes, sizes, and flavors, Todd's a trusted source when it comes to researching and advising on the real-world problems that affect daily plant production. And he knows a heck of a lot about poinsettias, as you'll hear today. Todd, welcome back to STEM. Hey, thanks, Bill. It's great to be back with you today. So for those who aren't aware, this is the second part of a two-part discussion of poinsettias. And in the first part, Dr. Will Healy kicked us off with a deep dive into poinsettia nutrition as the backbone for getting the crop off to a strong start. And now we're back in part two to continue the story and move the crop along to the finish line. So, Todd, can you talk a little bit about what the crop looks like now? And for those listening in real time, we're in week 39 or 40. And uh, what stage we're talking about this episode and then maybe get uh, into uh, the topics that that you're going to cover for us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is this is kind of an ex- exciting and transitioning time for poinsettia production. So like you said, we're week 39, 40. So for just about everybody, with maybe the exception of a few uh, extreme southern growers, we're pretty much in short days now, okay? So our photo period, uh, you know, our natural photo period is about 12 hours right now. So nearly every variety of poinsettia out there is starting to flower because those short days or longer nights, more than 12 hours, just what? triggers the poinsettia to start flowering and eventually give us those beautiful bracts. So with that in mind, we need to start adjusting our strategy a little bit. We've still got nice green plants. We've still got a lot of vigorous growth right now, but the way the poinsettia is going to grow from this point on starts to change a little bit. So, uh, you know, we need to start thinking right now, these are where my adjustments need to be made on my, my growth control strategy you know, Will did an excellent job talking about, um, you know, building the nutrition and packing that plant now. So that was a critical stage. And this is the reason why is the growth is starting to slow down a little bit. So, um, you know, uh, what are we going to do differently? Um, we got to start thinking about what our poinsettia needs to look like versus what it looks like now and start implementing those procedures and tactics to uh, really get everything on target. Okay, I like the way you said it's adjustment time, it's transition time, it's really where you need to uh, be out in the greenhouse, walking that crop, looking closely at the growth and and the way that those uh, crops are coming along. So let's start. Yeah, and don't forget, scouting pest and disease is also critical at this time as well. We're starting to run into some challenges there. So Uh, that's got to be something you want to get ahead of versus uh, waiting, waiting. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So let's go ahead and start with height. Uh, how do you ensure that you're going to be at the right height at the right time with your poinsettia crop, really understanding that this, the spec you're trying to hit? Yeah, well, um, you know, there's uh, one of our financial folks uh, in ball, uh, Todd. He is uh, in, on the financial side of the business, and he always gives us this great perspective that transitions right into the greenhouse. And he says, what gets measured gets improved. And so that's what my take-home message here is, We've got to know where we want to be and we got to know where we are so we can adjust how we get there. So start measuring those crops, you know, um, and then think about also the plant, the growth of the plant. Um, as we talk about measuring and how the plant's going to grow, there's kind of two growth aspects of plants here. We're kind of, and we're kind of transitioning from one to the other. Uh, the first aspect of plant growth is cell division. So this is adding new leaves. This is growing new roots. This is creating new branches. Well, as we transition into these short days, that part of growth really starts to subside. Okay. So, because the plant is starting to transition into this reproductive or flowering stage. So it's starting to shift all of its energy and nutrient supply into creating flowering and fruiting structures. So, we're pretty much there. As Will said, we've got to build it. We've got to get all those, those nutrients into the plant and build that part of the plant, build the base of the plant. Now, as we transition into this time of poinsettia production, we're really talking about managing cell elongation. So we've got all these leaves, we've got all these branches, and hopefully you've got the right amount. But now we need to manage cell elongation or how much stretch we're getting out of those existing tissues. So big, big time information here measure them and start realizing that our growth is different than it was three weeks ago. Do you have any quick tips for exactly how to measure that crop? It might seem, it might seem simple. There might be a bunch of different ways. What, what have you seen any good strategies that are, that are easy to, to use? Well, I, you know, a lot of us now are growing poinsettias to a given spec. You know, they need to be this tall, you know, say a six inch pot needs to be 18 inches tall. So, you know, Get some measuring sticks out there. That's a really great way to do it. Um, you know, one of the other things that uh, I really encourage you to look at is some, are some of the graphical tracking tools that are out there and available. At Ball Seed, we do have one. Uh, you can go to ballseed.com and under our catalogs and brochures uh, section of our webpage, if you scroll all the way down to the bottom of that, we have a poinsettia graphical tracking tool. I know that Duman uh, also offers one of those for their customers as well. Uh, they're a good partners of, of ours here at Ball Seed. So there's a couple of different sources out there. And you can really simply build your own uh, as well, you know, using a, a spreadsheet. And that's essentially what we've done at Ball Seed is we've taken a, an Excel spreadsheet and we've taken it and we have you a pretty simple operation here. You, you put in your starting height, you put in your starting week, your finish week and your finish height. And it graphs out a line as you put in your different heights throughout the crop. So you can track your crop as you go throughout it and see if you're on target. Now, ours is a generic tool, so we just have basically one line for all the poinsettia crops. So there's really a good opportunity for you to get to know the specific varieties that you're growing. And you can tailor uh, that graphical tracking and know that, you know what, I need a little bit more growth early on compared to that straight line that the spreadsheet's getting me. So, um, you know, there's several great tools out there, but measuring it, again, what gets measured gets improved and keeping track of it so you know whether you need to put your foot on the gas or foot on the brake. That's great. And I know that there was a lot of excitement about the garden mum 
uh, graphical tracking tool that we talked about in some previous episodes of STEM. So I do expect that, uh, that this poinsettia tracking tool will get a lot of use, and it certainly sounds like it'll be a great tool in every poinsettia grower's toolbox. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of growers out there, we, you know, these guys are great. They have great memories, but, you know, it's really easy to remember when you have it written down and recorded, you know, so that way you can go back and, and really make a good data decision, uh, data-driven decision. Absolutely. So once the growers have identified where their crop is on the chart, whether it's too tall or too short, what are the next steps? Can you kind of break it down for us and share options for getting back to that optimum size to hit that spec? Sure, sure. You know, really growth management, it really started way back, you know, weeks and weeks ago at the pinch. Uh, I know that's kind of where Will picked up and talked a lot about uh, the, his production strategies. We talked about starting at the pinch and, and that pinch was critical because that determined the amount of nodes that were left on the plant. And wherever we get nodes, that's where we get branching. So that determined, you know, how many flowers we get. And it'll determine a lot of, you know, if the plant's got to put a lot of different energies into multiple branches, it won't be quite as tall. So go out there and take a look at some of your plants right now. Count the nodes where you pinched to. Were you nice and uniform? Did you get the plant you want? Count the flower bracts that you have here in a few weeks as they start to develop. You know, really get a good hold of that and take some good notes. So again, the height strategy actually started weeks and weeks ago. Okay. And again, um, let's talk about that growth, those two aspects of growth. I've said that cell division has kind of stalled at this point. Um, and so now we're looking at uh, really growth management of that cell elongation. And okay, so what do we do? How do we manage that cell elongation to fine tune that plan into that perfect spec that we've got? We've got a couple of different tools available to us and you've got to use them all together, but let's just go through them right quick. The first one is temperature. And oftentimes with the development of poinsettia, we talk about average daily temperature. So the average of the nighttime and the average of the daytime temperature. And where some folks get into a little bit of problem is it's not just the high and the low, but it's how long did it spend at that temperature? So you've got to take a, all that, that temporal and temperature all together, uh, temperature and time together to really get a good estimate of how warm or how cold was that plant exposed to over that 24 hour period. You got to keep in mind, you know, there's a few things to consider too, and we won't get too far into the details today, but, you know, 72, um, nighttime, 72 degree Fahrenheit nighttime temperatures, if we get higher than that, we start to delay flower development, so that's a concern. If we get below 67 degrees or lower, we can really limit our bract expansion and bract development. So go back and review some of those key temperatures with poinsettias. But temperature is a very important tool we can use to help control our height. And of course, cooler temperatures, slower growth, a little bit less aggressive height. Okay, what else do we have? We have irrigation. So water management. You know, I know we've got a lot of great uh, feedback from our seminars and webinars that we've given on water management. Um, you know, I think Will gave one here on this podcast not too long ago about that. And he talked a lot about watering up to a, a level four and down to a level two. Okay. So four is pretty wet. It's not soaking wet. And two is fairly dry, but not bone dry. But what we can do is we can kind of leave plants a little bit more on that drier side to help control some of that stem elongation. And where this gets really important is when plants go into the night. We don't want plants going into the night wet for growth control purposes. If we're trying to limit our amount of stretch, we wanna try and irrigate 
first thing in the morning when we do irrigate, okay? That way we don't have soaking wet plants in the, at night. That's also a good uh, strategy for disease reduction as well. Okay, another aspect, light, light, light. We've got to get good light intensity or as much light down into the plant canopy as we can. Okay, for some of us, that will be removing sage structures. Um, for some of us in northern areas, that may be using uh, lights such as high intensity discharge lighting or LED lighting. And for all of us, it should really look at, we should look at spacing too. You know, this is the time when uh, plants need all the space they can get so they can absorb all the light that they can get at this time. So we've got that aspect. And then we've got that other great tool in our toolbox of managing plant growth. And those are plant growth regulators, okay? Uh, we've mentioned the transition. We're now entering to short days. And what that means for us is that we need to probably switch our plant growth regulator strategy. A lot of folks early on use combinations of B9 and psychocell plant growth regulators. But if we start to use those now at this later stage, we can really affect our BRAC size and development. So move towards the paclobutrazole type um, PGRs. And what most fi people find is that using these at very low drench rates are the best strategy for them. Okay, so you've given us some excellent tools there. The temperature, where you're reminded it's not just the highs and lows, but how long you're at those, at those uh, specific temperatures, the irrigation management, and the fact that you can go a little bit on the drier side to control the elongation, and that it's really not whether it's wet or dry, but but when, so certainly going into the nights. And then uh, I really liked what you said about the importance of um, using different uh, chemical applications for different stages of the game, and then of course, light. So um, it does sound like there is a pretty good toolbox that growers have uh, for managing um, the, the height of the crop. And uh, I think that that was a great overview. So thank you for that. Yeah. So one question that, that, that I've heard and that I had is why don't growers use diff if that crop is too tall? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of good research out there on diff or difference between day and night temperature. And you can use negative diff. And negative diff is when our night temperatures are actually warmer than our daytime temperatures uh, to achieve some height reduction or limit cell elongation in the plant. Okay. The problem with poinsettias, and I just looked at the weather just a few minutes ago before we started talking, is it's the time of year we're growing them. It makes it very difficult to use diff or negative diff to control, help control our height. You've got, you know, right now our days are still pretty warm. Um, I just, you know, at St. Louis, I just saw it's um, the last day of October or last day of September, they're scheduled to be a high of 90 degrees and a low of 70. You know, at those temperatures, you know, the greenhouse is just not going to get it cool enough at night to you be able to use a diff. So we're really limited by our outside weather with poinsettias on using a diff. Now I'm saying that, um, and that's for, you know, most of our growers in North America, say middle of U.S. down to the south. However, for our northern growers, um, say you're in Toronto, your weather's probably at the stage now where your nights are cool enough uh, that you can use some negative diffs. So it is a tool you can use. You just have to be cognizant of where you are and whether or not the temp outside temperatures are going to allow you to achieve that different, that negative diff. And uh, one of the things you can do as well, um, 
plant growth and elongation happens most right before daylight starts. So if you're going to use a diff, you don't have to keep your temperatures up all night long. You can really use just a dip or a, um, you know, a little bit of temperature change just, uh, just a couple of hours, one to two hours before sunrise and really get the same advantage there. Okay, so once again, it comes down to the fact that we are a national industry with regional nuances, and it's best to really have a good understanding of your uh, your own conditions um, when, when you look at all these different tools, including DIFF. Yeah, so, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what constitutes an acceptable plant when we when we look at poinsettias. And I guess more importantly, for those of uh, those growers that are shipping these into retail, is how to avoid an unacceptable plant. In terms of the leaves or the the inner nodes and the habit, does some of this come down to optimizing your growth regulator strategy, or what what really um, uh, factors in when it comes to const, uh, what constitutes an acceptable plant? Yeah, I you know I'm gonna go back to your conversation with Will uh, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it really started within what kind of plant base did you build? You know, how wide were your leaves? He talked about using his fingers to measure the width of the leaves and stuff and, and finding out where you really are. So it started then, but yes, PGRs can be a very important factor now, but it's those things we talked about just a few moments ago where we have to put all of this together. It's the spacing to get the light down into the canopy. It's that temperature and it's that water management. So um, you know, it's not that we're stuck and we have to accept what we have now, but we really need to have worked on building that structure earlier. And then we can use these four or five tools we've discussed here to really tone in and get that acceptable plant to that target that we're trying to meet. And I guess, you know, we, we've talked about this meeting this target. At some point, we've got to sit down and hopefully that was before we ever got the, the cuttings in. We've got to figure out what is that acceptable target? You know, what do you want your plant to look like as far as height and flower count? Uh, those are something really important to get, get established early. Okay. No, I, I and thanks for that uh, clarification. So one of the factors that, that you talked about just a few minutes ago that I think gives a lot of people... Um, I don't know, kind of probably can keep them up at night thinking about uh, the strategy is the growth regulators. Um, can you go into a little bit of detail about the PGRs and best practices when it comes to creating that perfect point set of structure everyone's striving to achieve? Sure, sure. I, I mentioned uh, Paclobutrazol earlier. I want to, we'll talk about that. But first, I want to mention something else that really helps us out in this aspect. And you mentioned, you know, it's important to know where growers know where their locations are and how their plants are going to perform. So I want to take that, that, that thought one step further, and I want to talk about variety selections. Um, now, I'm not the one to answer this question, but each of these poinsettia companies that we work with at Ball Seed, they have the experts that can help you choose the right poinsettia variety for your area, for your market, for your target size. So... Absolutely. Let's choose that. If we're trying to grow a poinsettia in a four inch container, we probably don't want the most aggressive variety out there. So it does come with variety selection and working with your breeder representative to find out what that is. <clears throat> so get the right varieties first off. Okay. So let's go back to then uh, the plant growth regulator question you ask. And I mentioned earlier, this is the time to switch to paclobutrazol type uh, PGRs. Um, you know, and again, drench applications are, seem to be the most um, popular right now. And I've seen a lot of this done and I'm really impressed with the results. 
And I would say what most people are saying is that they're applying micro drenches. You might ask, well, what's a micro drench? Well, it's really just a very low concentration of the plant growth regulator. So for those of you that are growing up in the northern latitudes, um, you know, we're talking about a tenth or a quarter part per million of bonsai or uh, another paclobutrazole type drench on your containers. Okay, you may go up to half part per million depending on how aggressive the variety is. Uh, for those growers that are, you know, further down in the south, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people starting out a quarter part per million, maybe even going up to one part per million of this paclobutrazole drench. And again, those are drenches that people are applying, you know, weekly, every other week. It really just depends on your growing strategy, the varieties you selected, you know, how your weather outside is, what your greenhouse settings are. But, you know, get some of this product in and test a variety of different rates on a variety of different varieties. Um, you will see some differences, but really explore the Paclobutrazole micro drenches and see if you what rates you need and do you want to apply it weekly or bi-weekly? What do you want to do? And again, remember, the reason we're going to Paclobutrazole drenches is so that we do not affect the BRAC size and BRAC development. Now, does that mean that we can't? Well, anytime we do anything too much, we can run a risk, but these lower drench rates that we mentioned seem to be pretty safe for everybody. Okay. Um, that's a, that's a fantastic overview. I do like that. Um, the fact that you did call out that new strategy you're seeing out there with the micro drenches. And I would imagine that the, the different chemical companies have some pretty good research and information for growers to help them kind of nail that the right, the right way for that. Crop. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things I can't stress enough is follow your labels. You know, people always ask me, well, how should I apply this? And my answer is uh, all the time is apply it according to the label. And the reason is, is you know, it's not just to <laughs> stress you out or anything. It's that these companies have done a really good job of going out there and researching what the optimum rates are. And with poinsettia as being such a, you know, a high volume crop here in North America, there's a lot of research on the different drench rates and application methods out there. So read and follow those labels. A high volume crop and a crop that um, you really don't want to, you just, you don't want your shrink to creep up because um, you really want to maximize the the sale of that crop and not throw any out, which gets us to the next uh, point I want to talk about, which is insects. So once again, I'm sure you're going to talk about the importance of monitoring. Will uh, really has, uh, has, has hammered that in um, to the STEM audience over the course of the last uh, podcast about poinsettias. So what are the most common insects seen in poinsettia crops and, um, and uh, any, any tips you have for monitoring? Yeah, I think year in and year out, the number one pest, especially as we get into later in the year, you know, we'll see some other pests early on, maybe like some thrips early on. But our number one pest is and has been, and I'm guessing it always will be, white flies. Um, they're just, uh, they're synonymous with poinsettias. So, um, you know, this is something, you know, monitoring is critical. You know, and monitoring, you can't just, you know, if you're walking a greenhouse, you can't just monitor the few crops on the edge of the bench. You've really got to get out there. 
you know, sneak around down to the edges, places where there are doorways, entryways, exhaust fans. That tends to be where we have, you know, some of our highest population. So find out, you know, document where your hotspots are in the greenhouse and check those regularly. Um, you know, monitoring with white flies, you can't just go and tap a leaf and sometimes they'll fly away, but you really need to get down in there, turn some leaves over, you know, look around um, and uh, really do do yourself a good a do due diligence on scouting, not just, uh, don't do a golf cart scouting. <laughs> if you, uh, you know, actually get out there and, and turn some leaves over by hand. I think that, uh, documenting your hotspots and making sure that the entire growing team is aware of, uh, of where you've seen those, um, th- those problems crop up in the past is probably a really, really good piece of advice. Yeah. Here's another good piece of advice. I think, um, let's talk about poinsettias for next year. Your pest control strategy starts as soon as you move these guys out. So um, sanitation, um, I can't stress enough how much I've seen improvements in pest management with growers who are doing an excellent job of sanitation. So that's removing debris from the greenhouse. That's using uh, soaps and disinfectants to clean up afterwards. Not only does it clean up disease and algae and things like that, but it does an excellent job on preventing pest problems. Because a lot of these pests we deal with in the greenhouse, they actually overwinter in the greenhouses. They'll overwinter down in the cracks between sidewalks. They'll overwinter in debris and things like that. So Start your sanitation, your pest management, uh, you know, immediately after this crop is out of there for next year's crop. And I've heard you talk about sanitation quite a bit. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if maybe potentially we can do a standalone uh, episode just on sanitation in and of itself. I think so. I think it's worthy of it. It's that important of a topic. Excellent. It's down in my uh, magic notebook of future topics. So when you've detected insects, whether it is the white fly or the thrips, um, what are the best strategies uh, for control? I know that I've heard you say there are kind of three main factors to consider, right? Yeah, you know, you've got to, first of all, you know, you got to scout and you got to find out, the, find if the pest is there, you know, and you got to get the right one identified. Uh, so you got to identify the pest, right pest. Then you got to find out the right chemical to apply and you got to get it applied at the right time. So right pest, right chemical, right time. These are kind of three aspects you need to think about. And, uh, you know, along the lines of that, um, what, what do I mean by that? Well, with poinsettias, if we don't sell them, you know, poinsettia on December 26th, not doing anybody any good. So we got to have a definite marketing time for these guys. Um, so we know that this crop is going to leave by a certain date. Most of you guys out there in the growing world, you know what your ship date is on your given varieties and and sizes and things like that. So let's think about that ship date and knowing that we want to ship good plants. uh, We're not going to, you know, scouting the day of shipping is not a good idea um, because we're not going to probably apply something effectively at that point. But, uh, but let's think about that timing and then think about your choices and insecticide for these guys. So there are some really great products out there, um, you know, that have good long residual that you can apply weeks before shipping and get that residual activity or get that insect control, you know, two and three weeks later. So go out there and look at those options. Um, So, you know, things uh, and oh, we've got we've got colored bracts, right? They can be a lot more sensitive to certain pesticides. So get out there, research the literature. 
do trials yourself, find out and make sure that what you apply is going to be safe and doesn't burn the bracts. So some of the things to consider is time of day that you apply that, the, the chemical, you know, what's the condition? Is it sunny and bright or is it cloudy? And then, you know, is the crop well irrigated beforehand? Those are some important factors um, because I think I've seen chemicals that have been applied in the, you know, under the right environmental conditions, not do anything to harm the foliage. And I've seen chemicals applied during, you know, the heat or the sunny times of the day and definitely burn the chemicals. So get that in your playbook, figure out which chemicals and which application timing is correct for you. Um, I would imagine a lot of that does come down to just trialing it. You give it a try in your greenhouse, read up on the literature and you'll have yeah, a much better idea. Absolutely. I mean, there's some good recommendations out there. Um, you know, our, our partners at Selecta that we work closely with at Ball Seed, they have some excellent information out there. And almost all of them say trial first, trial first. Uh, but when you go out there and you read some of the literature and trials, you know, from university folks and things like that, you'll find some chemicals that people have found safe to apply on BRACs. So, for instance, Rycar is a really, really popular one for late season white fly control. Safari, um, that's a neonic. So I know some folks uh, do not have access to that or can't use that in their program, but it's a really good one with long-term activity. And then there's uh, one that's fairly new on the market, Contos. So this is a really interesting one when I talked about timing and strategy. Contos, if you drench it, has a really long residual and can get you control for weeks and weeks afterwards. But it may not be, it's not the fastest acting, so it's not going to knock something down right away. So, you know, get out there, research the literature, do some trials. Um, again, you can, <laughs> there's good information out there, but, you know, it, if my my livelihood my and my profits are depending upon it, I'm going to get out there and do some trialing first to make sure, even though folks say it's safe, I want to make sure it's safe under my conditions because your water quality is also something that comes into play with that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So before we wrap up this two-part series, I can almost guarantee that we've missed something because we have talked for between you and Will, we've talked for almost an hour about a crop that probably requires, you know, days and days of training. So what have we missed? Is there anything else you want to share or anything that was left out of either part? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Um, let me back up right quick to the white fly discussion. If you've been applying some chemicals, same things you've applied historically, and they just don't seem to be working, there may be a reason for that on white fly. You know, it's been about 15 years, but it's really becoming more prominent in the past few years is we have this new subtype or biotype of whitefly out there called the Q-type whitefly, and it is resistant to a lot of our traditional chemicals. So, um, you know, uh, imidacloprid, which is a neonic um, pesticide, historically we used it for years and years. It gave us great control, and all of a sudden it quit working on whiteflies. Well, through DNA analysis, we found out because we had this Q-type now, it was resistant to it. So there are some chemicals that don't work on all the whiteflies all the time. So get out there, you know, do some internet searches on Q-type whiteflies and make sure that the chemical you're choosing works for that one. So that's something important I wanted to bring up. Another thing I want to bring up is we've talked about height control, we've talked about pests, but let's not forget about diseases. You know, a late season uh, root rot can really devastate our crops. So 
Be sure in your scouting program that includes the pH and EC monitoring that Will talked about, the pest monitoring we're talking about, that it also includes taking that pot you know, off of those roots and taking a look and make sure you have healthy roots. And do you need to apply a late season fungicide here to ensure crop health? Okay. That's, I think um, you're right. That is something that, that we haven't uh, brought up yet, but certainly something that plenty of, grow, plenty of growers have, I'm sure, had to deal with in the past. So bottom yeah. line, take the plant out of the pot, look at the roots, and uh, you're going to get a much better handle on what's going on down there. Yeah. And, you know, as something, another consideration as we move later and later into the season, uh, whether you're trying to grow cool to save energy, and if you're going to try and grow cool and save energy, that's where you've got to work with your breeder representative to make sure you choose the right varieties that can tolerate that and meet your timing. But when we try to grow cooler in the greenhouses, we might do when we get brack color and we want to drop the temperatures to maintain that brack color. Really keep in mind that sometimes condensation can be a problem within the greenhouse. So as we cool the greenhouse structures, the water that has translocated from the plants starts to collect and drip back down on the plants. So that can cause problems with botrytis um, or just damage in general. So as you transition and start to drop those temperatures, make sure you're minding that and your botrytis control strategy as well as the, as the growth of the plant. And make sure that we don't cool the greenhouse too cool to maintain one, you know, an early varieties color and end up delaying another varieties development. So just keep that in mind. Which comes back to what you said earlier is really um, the selection of your varieties and studying up on those varieties is very, very critical. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I've been at this now about 20 years in the industry, uh, you know, whether I was a professor or out here as, as, a, as a technical specialist for ball. And the poinsettia varieties that I learned about and started with then are completely different than what we have now. So, um, you know, you, if you're still growing some really old varieties, I think you really owe it to yourself to get out here and explore some of the newer ones, give them a chance. I think you'll be really impressed with them. They, they do present a little bit different. You'll see the breaks come out a little bit different, but the finished quality of the plant I've been really impressed with. And that uh, reminds me that we did do a STEM episode in the past, which I will link to in the show notes with Gary Vollmer, who is an expert, a, uh, a product expert with Selecta, who talks a lot about the, the best new varieties and what he's seen in trials and, and maybe how to upgrade your poinsettia um, uh, mix in terms of varieties. So I will definitely link to, to what Gary talked about um, in the show notes. Yeah, he's absolutely one of my favorites when it comes to selecting poinsettia varieties. Yeah, it was definitely a fun episode. So lastly, can you offer any, I guess, post-harvest best practices for maximizing the sell-through of poinsettias? Because it really is one of our most aesthetic crops. That was a term that Will used. Um, and, and we were talking about how there's really very little margin for error. Um, and that margin for error results in shrink. And that's the last thing we want with poinsettias. And we have had another past episode with Tanya Carvalho from uh, Selecta and Ball Flora Plant, where she did talk a lot about great ways to display the poinsettias, how to use poinsettias for retail events, and, and all that kind of um, sort of fun aesthetic stuff. So I will link to, to that. But I'm from, from you, I'm mostly interested in any post-harvest best practices that a grower might use to make sure that that optimum crop is going to market with the best chance of sell-through. 
Yeah, I, I two things come to mind. One is temperature management. Um, so keeping the crop a little bit cooler than you normally would for production, that helps hold the color um, and, and just keep the plant toned and stretched. So one's a little bit cooler temperatures. Um, and then two is nutrition. Okay, and these are these these two things that I'm talking about for post-harvest longevity actually start the last week or two in your greenhouse. So on nutrition, you know, we talked about, you know, the plant has transitioned. It's no longer div- has cell division and producing new leaves and things like that. So as this, this is especially true as we see bright development and full coloration, the plant just isn't growing. So it doesn't need as much nutrition. Now it still needs some, but here's my strategy. Even at the end of the crop, I still like to provide a low amount of nutrition. Let's say something like 100 parts per million nitrogen from a complete fertilizer. Um, Because to me, that's still essential to keep the lower leaves nice and green and encourage leaf retention. But it's not too high where salts are going to start to build up because the plant's not taking up much nutrients. So a little bit cooler temperatures and still a little bit of, um, you know, low but, but complete fertilizer application would be my suggestions. And then also, you know, mind, you've still got to mind your water management this late in the year. Um, you know, again, late season root rots, something that's just going to devastate us. So mind your watering and just keep checking those roots. I like that suggestion about um, making sure you stay on top of that nutrition before you send it off with just a little bit of a, a kickstart, because I would think that at retail, you know, certainly if you're getting poinsettias from a few different sources, you're going to notice those, those, uh, those crops that come in that have a little bit of extra shelf life or, you know, look a little bit better on the retail shelf. And you're going to, you're definitely going to pay attention to which grower those are coming from. So um, this is probably a pretty uh, inexpensive or simple uh, solution to really make your crop stand out above, uh, above the rest. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Todd. You have shared a ton of great resources um, for listeners to check out in this in this episode. And I know before we recorded, we were talking a little bit about the webinars that are available um, on the Selecta website when you get into the poinsettia section. I will link to those in the show notes. I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to say about those. Well, I tell you what, those are really great because Gary has done what you've done here, Bill. He he, and Jason Twadell from Ball Floor Plant, they talked about the poinsettias during different stages of production. So, you know, you aren't wasting your time listening through hours of talk to get right down into where you need. So, yes, those Selecta um, webinars, they're great. You know, you can listen to the audio or you can just look at the slides, um, you know. Keep handy those breeder websites, so select a Doom and Syngenta or whoever it may be, finding out some of those late season production tips. Get those uh, bookmarked on your on your web browser there and keep checking on, on those. We've got to keep things under control right till we ship those guys out the door. So another thing I might suggest you do is, Bill, I know you're critical as part of this, but uh, here at Ball Seed, we start to share a lot. Of, we've been sharing a lot of information on LinkedIn. So I'm sure some of those tech tips that we share from time to time, those pictures we get of some plants that may be struggling or uh, some pest and disease problems, be checking us out on LinkedIn because we'll be posting some of these pictures and maybe help you alleviate some of these problems before they become a big problem for you. That's a great shout out and certainly something I mentioned at the end of every single STEM episode is to definitely connect and follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn. Um, we've already shared some poinsettia tips in the last 
uh, probably within the last three or four weeks on LinkedIn. And there's a lot more to come um, specific to all sorts of crops throughout the year. So, Todd, how can folks get a hold of you with any questions they might have? Well, the best way to get a hold of me is through my email, uh, and that's tcavins at ballhort.com. That's one of the best ways. You can also call our office, you know, Ball Seed, call into our main office there, and they will connect you with a person of technical expertise in the right area. That may be me on a given day if I'm available, or it may be somebody else. So call us at, uh, at Ball Seed at the 1-800 number, and you can put it up there for me if you will, Bill. That'd be wonderful. Um, and then again, on LinkedIn, um, you know, we are out there trying to be active on social media on LinkedIn. And so you'll see uh, tips and tricks. You can reach out to me on uh, through there as well. Excellent. So this has been great. Both this episode and part one with Will, I think that um, for anyone who grows poinsettias that you guys have really shared some valuable insights. I know that some of what you shared has been a recap or a refresher um, of some of the basics that, that growers need to remember and probably uh, kind of bone up on each year and certainly share with any new team members. But there's also been a lot of cutting edge strategies and I think new new research and certainly with the new varieties out there, there's a lot of intricacies. So I think you've helped growers in any side operation produce the best crop that they possibly can. And for that, I'm very appreciative. I know the listeners are as well. So thanks a lot, Todd. And I, I can't wait to talk again on a future episode. Maybe it'll be sanitation. Hey, sounds like a great plan, Bill. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros. And special thanks for helping us surpass 13,000 downloads. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to recommend it to your peers and coworkers. They can subscribe on any podcast player, including iTunes, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and more. I really appreciate the support. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. That's B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. Let's end this episode with a quote about focus from self-improvement pioneer Paul J. Meyer. Productivity is never an accident. It's always the result of a commitment to excellence, intelligent planning, and focused effort. <laughs>